One of the oldest English prayers, the Collect for Purity, begins with the phrase, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. This prayer acknowledges that nothing is hidden from God's sight. The Lord sees and the Lord hears everything. Okay, we say, we, we know that. Okay, we believe that. We know the scripture teaches us that. But how often do we forget that? Uh, how often do we fail to believe that? Psalm 34, which Peter quotes here in our passage, teaches that the Lord not only sees and hears everything, but that the Lord who sees and hears is good. Okay, taste and see that the Lord is good. And because he is good, he blesses those who walk in his ways. His ears and his eyes are turned toward those who fear him. And also because he is good, his face is set against those who do evil, those who reject his ways. This is the fundamental reality that drives Peter's instruction to us this morning from 1 Peter 3. As we've been uh, working our way through the letter of 1 Peter, we've seen the particular ways, specific ways that Peter has instructed the church to live her life, to conduct herself through the time of her sojourning among the Gentiles. Peter began the letter by reminding us who we are as the chosen people of God. He spent a whole chapter and a half talking about our identity as the people who have received God's mercy and now belong to him. Okay, this is foundational. When we get to the specific instructions, we have to remember what we read in the beginning, who we are. Uh, this is foundational. All his instruction for living is built on the premise that Jesus has rescued us. Okay, he has rescued us from a condition of sin and misery and placed us into a condition of grace and salvation. And Peter's talked about the future hope, okay, what, what's happened now, who we are now, but he talks about a future hope to which we have been called, the direction that we're headed, the hope of a salvation that will be fully revealed on the last day, a salvation that we are growing up into, Okay, as we taste and see that the Lord is good, as we're nourished by the spiritual milk of the word, we're growing up into this salvation. And we're being guarded and we're being kept by God's power through various trials until we receive this full inheritance, uh, the inheritance of salvation that God has been keeping in heaven for us. So we've been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. We've been called out of the ways of darkness and into the ways of light. There's been a transfer from the old way of life to a new way of life because of God's mercy. Okay, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we who put our hope and our trust in Jesus have been born again to a living hope. Okay, you see that connection? The resurrection is new life. And now we have new life who trust in him. The resurrection brings about this new life here and now. 
We've been given this new life through the word of the gospel, Peter says. This word forms us into a people who belong to God, who are to love one another and to proclaim God's marvelous works among the nations. So the word makes us new, it makes us alive, and it starts to transform us so that we can declare God's marvelous works. We can show that we have been brought into God's marvelous light. And in the section that we've been in the last uh, several weeks that I've been preaching in 1 Peter, he started to address specific groups within the church, specific roles that church members might play in the world, and how each of these uh, subgroups of the church are to conduct themselves among the pagans. Uh, Back in chapter 2, Peter gives this general exhortation, okay, he says this in, in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, okay, your old life, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, they need to see uh, God's marvelous light in your way of life. And Peter's urging them to keep their conduct honorable. Uh, Then he goes to, to speak specifically to those roles, how we are to go about doing good in the world. He spoke to citizens, who submit to civil magistrates, uh, to slaves who are submitting to their masters, to wives who are to submit to their husbands, even unbelieving ones, and to husbands who are to show honor to their wives, uh, to live with their wife according to understanding. And now in our text this morning, he speaks to the whole church again. Okay? He's giving a general address to the whole church with specific instructions. He says, finally, all of you, okay, all of you, everybody in the church, uh, what his instructions are this morning concern each and every one of us here. As we look at these few verses this morning, we can divide up uh, this teaching to the whole church in three ways. Okay, he gives instructions about our internal relationships as the church among one another. That's what we saw in verse 8. Uh, He gives instructions about our external relationships to our enemies, okay, to the world who hates us and is hostile to us. And then in verses 10 through 12, he gives the motivation behind all of these instructions. So we could put these three divisions this way. The church is, number one, to display the character of Christ in our relationships with one another. Okay, number two, the church is to display the character of Christ in our dealings with our enemies. And number three, the church will receive God's blessing when we live in this way. Okay, those are my three points. That's my outline and where we're going. So let's start with the first one. The church is to display the character of Christ in our relationships among one another. Okay, we are the people formed by the word of the gospel. That's the word which Peter says was proclaimed to you, the word of the gospel, which means we are a people who are formed by the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Because Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, we are now able to die to our sins 
and to live unto righteousness. Because Christ was raised from the dead, we are now raised from the dead, born anew, walking in new life. Yes, we, we do have the hope of a future physical resurrection, that's true, uh, but Peter says you've been born again now, you've been raised now. Uh, we have that new resurrection life here and now, and that makes a difference in how we live among one another. Okay, this means that our life together as the church is to be patterned after Christ. It's to be patterned after the life of Christ. Our life together is both made possible by Christ's work. Okay, he makes that possible through his work on the cross and his resurrection and ascension. But it's also to be the pattern for our life. To be patterned after Christ's life. The characteristics Peter gives here for the church's life are not a random list of just nice, lovey-sounding words, okay? These are character traits, the very character traits uh, that Christ himself modeled for us, uh, for his people. And if you notice throughout the New Testament, this list, or very similar phrasing, shows up a number of times, and that's significant. We heard uh, from Romans 12 in our epistle lesson this morning, and it's very nearly identical uh, to Peter's list. Uh, several other epistles contain very similar wording and instruction for how the church is to live. And this, of course, is not coincidental. The reason the apostles include this specific list is because this is the kind of community that Jesus has made us to be. Okay, this is the community that Jesus is forming. We are the community who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We've been brought into his marvelous light. And this, these are the traits uh, to display that marvelous light among one another and in the world. Okay, this is the fruit that grows up when the gospel seed is planted in a community. Remember in chapter 1, Peter said, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, okay, when you've uh, received the gospel, you accepted the gospel, you were purified, and he says, for a sincere brotherly love. Okay, you received the gospel, were purified for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Okay, the word of the gospels made us alive. It's given us new desires. It's given us new loves. We've been ransomed from the former passions, from the former desires from the futile ways, okay, the empty ways, the ways that lead to frustration and misery, and we've been brought into a new way of living, new desires that result in joy and in blessing from God. So Peter paints the ideal uh, portrait of church life, uh, the ideal to which we all ought to aspire. If we desire God's blessing in our church, if we want to experience the good life as God defines it, this is the path, okay? This is the way that he calls us to pursue it. Peter describes this life together using five characteristics. Okay, he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. We're going to walk through each of these briefly. First, he says, we need to have unity of mind. Okay, we need to have the same mind. Uh, this doesn't mean that we're going to agree on everything or think alike about everything. 
But it does mean we need to agree or be in harmony on the main things. Okay, we are all here today for the same reason. We're all part of this church for the same reason. We're here first and foremost because of Jesus. Peter said in chapter 1, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Because of what God revealed to you in the gospel, Jesus has brought us all here together. He has forgiven us. He's changed us forever. And he's the shared object of our love. We all love the same person. That is why we are here. Uh, That is why the church is made up of young and old, of rich and poor, uh, all different kinds of ethnicities and nationalities, different socioeconomic backgrounds. What other motivation would explain all these different groups gathering together and identifying with one another? The one thing we have in common is Jesus. Okay, so we share a common confession. We share a common table. We share a common life together. Paul says in Philippians 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We're told that the early church in Acts chapter 4, the full number of those who believed, it says, were of one heart and soul. The church had one heart and soul. Christ in John 17 prays for this, right? His high priestly prayer, he's praying to the Father that the church would be one, even as you and I are one, Father. So we should be united in our thinking. We should be of the same mind. Christ is the basis of our unity. And in turn, this means we should not be divisive. We should not be eager to set, our, set up ways to distinguish ourselves from one another, to separate out into camps and factions. Uh, we should not needlessly divide over secondary issues. Rather, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We should live in harmony with each other because we all belong to the same Lord. As Peter quotes from Psalm 34, if we want the favor and blessing of God on our church, We need to be people who seek peace and pursue it. All right, second, we're to have sympathy for one another. Shared passion, literally suffering with one another. In the church, we are called to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Because we are one body, when one member suffers, when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers together. Uh, When one member has a problem, it's all our problem, right? When one member is honored and receives blessing, um, all members rejoice together. Having sympathy for one another means caring about the needs of each other, the joys and the sorrows of one another. In order to know what those joys and sorrows and needs are, we have to take time to get to know one another. We have to be in each other's lives if we're going to have sympathy Uh, You can't get close, you can't have sympathy if you're not willing to get close to one another and get to know one another, which also means we have to get out of ourselves, right? We have to get out of our own preoccupations with our own lives and be others-oriented. Jesus displayed this kind of sympathy when he wept with Mary and Martha after Lazarus died. Hey, Jesus knew what was about to happen. He knew he was going to go raise Lazarus from the dead, but he had sympathy 
with Mary and Martha. Uh, He suffered with them. He was not inconsiderate of their grief, rather he shared in their grief. Hebrews 4 tells us that Christ is able to sympathize, the same word, sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way. Jesus came and shared in our weaknesses in that way, though he was without sin. So Christ sympathizes with us and we ought to, as the people of Christ, displaying the characteristics and traits of Christ, we ought to sympathize with our brothers and sisters. Third, we're to have brotherly love. God has made us a part of his family by uniting us to his son, and this makes us brothers and sisters. That's where the language of scripture comes in, of us being brothers and sisters. It's because we share the same father. Hey, we're united to the same brother, and we share the same father. We're loved by the same father, which means that if we say we love the father, then we should love those whom he loves. We have been born anew, born again by the word, so our new identity includes a new family. We are to love one another with this objective familial reality in mind. We're to treat each other like family, to look out for one another like family. These are your people. Look around. These are your people this morning. We should care for one another like a family does. Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. We should not be ashamed of our brothers and sisters in Christ either. Rather, we should receive those whom Jesus has received. Cain hated his brother because of how envious he was of the Lord's blessing on him. Instead of being envious, we need to rejoice when our brothers and sisters are blessed by God. And we too will receive a blessing. Fourth, we are to be tender-hearted toward one another. Tender-hearted. Compassionate toward each other. Love is, of course, sometimes dispassionate, sometimes without emotions, and it needs to be sometimes. Emotions are not the essential element of love. You can't say, I don't love because I don't feel it. Uh, We are called to love whether we feel like it or not. But God has created us as emotional creatures, and so he wants us to love emotionally. He wants our emotions to be aligned with reality. Emotions can't be the only factor that we rely upon, but that doesn't mean emotions are unimportant. We're commanded here to have tender hearts toward one another. That is a kind of affection toward each other. The word is literally responding from the guts. Okay, that was the Greek word for the heart, is the guts. Uh, responding from the guts, a warm-hearted affection toward each other, not hard-hearted or cold. Our affections should line up with the objective reality of our relationship to one another in Christ. Ephesians 4 uses this same word and ties it to our forgiving of one another, okay? Being willing to forgive because we're tender-hearted to one another. Paul says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's showing mercy toward each other. In Exodus 34, the Lord is described this way as compassionate and kind towards his people. Because the Lord has shown us forgiveness and mercy, we in turn are called to show forgiveness and compassion to one another. 
Fifth, the last characteristic he gives for the church is to walk in humility toward one another. There is no place for sinful pride among the people of God. Christians more than anyone should know that we have nothing whatsoever to boast in except the Lord. All that we have, we have received from the Lord's hand. All of our wealth, our material goods, our family life, our skills and abilities are from the Lord. And we know that but for the grace of God, we stand guilty, uh, deserving God's eternal wrath and judgment. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all made a mess of things. And if it were not for Jesus, we would not be where we are today. And we can all confess that. We all say that we believe that. So we stand level at the cross. The cross and the grace of God should humble us so that we never look down on our brothers and sisters or consider ourselves more important than another brother or sister. Rather, we should walk in humility, laying our lives down in service. When visitors come into TPC, they should think humility, okay? People who are laying their lives down in service to one another as fellow recipients of God's grace. Christ, who had every reason to boast, more than anyone exemplified humility and service and how he loved his people. Philippians 2 again, Paul says that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So because Christ gave us this example, we are to have this mind among ourselves. We should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. We are to be a people marked by humility toward one another. Each of these characteristics, uh, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, are to be true of our life together. These are traits that Christ exemplified And these are traits that we are to display in the power of Christ. These are for all of us. You can't say, well, it's just not my personality type to be tenderhearted or to be sympathetic. This is the way of life that all of us are called to. That's why Peter says, finally, all of you. These are for all of you. We're not talking about sentimentality, but willing the good of another. That's how Aquinas defines love, willing the good of another um, and not doing so begrudgingly, doing so because we desire to. God wants our desires to line up with that. Uh, If your desires do not line up with that, then humble yourself and pray and ask God to give you those desires because we know that he wants you to have them. He's revealed that to us. He wants you to have these desires. Notice that these traits cannot be fulfilled or done in isolation. Okay, you need the body of Christ to be a faithful Christian. Uh, just to obey these commands, you need other Christians uh, to do them. It's easy to think you're a good Christian when you're by yourself, when you're in isolation. It's when you start getting close to other sinners over a long period of time that you start to realize that this can only be done through a divine work of God. Okay, this can only be possible Uh, because of what Christ has done. Uh, This is only possible if God 
intervenes and makes this happen. It's easy to love the church in the abstract. Okay, I just love the church, love the idea of the church um, from a distance, but it's much harder to do the real work of loving one another up close and personal. Okay, we live in a society where you can just go, go down the road when you get tired of these people, right? Just go down to, to another church. Uh, but sticking it out, loving one another, doing the hard work of getting up close and personal, this is what God calls us to do. And not only that, this is what he has given us the resources to do in the gospel. Okay, this is why he's made us alive. This is part of how we display his marvelous light. The spirit of Christ works these things out in us. He works these new desires in us. Yes, we strive, we have to put in the work, not denying that. But it is God who works in us for his good pleasure. Otherwise, it's absolutely impossible. So the church should be a place of refuge for one another in a fallen world. This doesn't mean we're always going to get it right. We're all sinners. We will not be perfect. But our, relationship, our relationships here should look different than out there. Okay? If we say we're a people of God's marvelous light that we've been transformed, it needs to look that way. Uh, that needs to happen. We should be a community marked by forgiveness and love toward one another. We are a family, and we need to act like a family, like a healthy one, not a dysfunctional one, like the family of God, like we are the children of our Father in heaven. So as Peter says, put away the ways of former ignorance, put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, and put on the character of Christ in our relationships with one another. And pray that the Lord would give you the desires and the resources to do so. And he's promised a blessing for us when we do. He's promised to bless us and our church. So the church is to display the character of Christ in our relationships with one another. Peter also instructs us how we are to behave towards outsiders. And specifically towards our enemies towards those who hate us. That's the situation Peter, Peter's dealing with. Uh, he says, Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Okay, this is the issue that keeps coming up in Peter's letter, um, hostility from pagan neighbors. That's the occasion of the letter. The church is undergoing persecution from surrounding pagans in Asia Minor, and Peter's instructing them on the Lord's teaching about loving their enemies. Hey, Jesus, uh, just as Christ loved his enemies and blessed them, so the church is called to display the character of Christ by returning blessing for reviling. The first thing to notice here is that the church has real enemies. Hey, there are people who hate us. And would love to see us become extinct. Uh, the righteous are a witness against their wickedness. They hate us because they hate God and they hate his ways. John says, don't be surprised when the world hates you. Hey, if they hated Jesus, they're going to hate you if you're following Jesus, if you're displaying the characteristics of Christ. We will experience hostility from those who hate the Lord and hate his ways. If we don't have any enemies, okay, if we don't, if we say, I, you know, I don't have any enemies out there, uh, we need to ask ourselves, are we really standing for the truth? Okay, are we really walking in righteousness? When you live faithfully, 
Wicked people will hate you for it because they feel condemned. Hey, John says, why did Cain murder Abel? In 1 John, he's, he's talking about Cain and Abel. He says, why did Cain murder Abel? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Hey, Cain was envious. The light exposes the darkness. And those who walk in the darkness feel judged by it. Hey, they feel judged when you're displaying God's marvelous light. So we have real enemies. Um, and notice that the wicked will attack in wicked ways. They will revile, they will slander, they will abuse, and they will attack you. Peter has already exhorted the church to make sure that they're not giving their attackers legitimate reasons to revile them or attack them. But even when you're doing good deeds, even when you're walking in God's ways, the wicked will revile you, just as they did Christ. We are not pretending that this is not a real offense. Okay? Peter's teaching isn't just... Sweep it under the rug, it's no big deal. You know, pretend like it, it's uh, not a real offense. No, we acknowledge it's real evil that is done to us by real enemies. But Peter says, following the Lord's teaching and example, he says that we are not to return evil for evil. Though evil is done to us, we are not to pay it back. Hey, that's our natural inclination. If you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. Um, we're not to take our enemy's tactics, Peter says, not to use our enemy's tactics. We don't pay back for evil done to us. We don't seek personal retaliation. Now, let me say this. What Peter said in chapter 2 about the civil magistrate's role in punishing evil, okay, he's not negating that. He's not saying that's not a thing. Okay, that still stands. The Lord carries out his vengeance in his own ways, including through the civil magistrate. What Peter's talking about here is personal revenge, okay, personal retaliation. We see the same thing in Paul in Romans 12 and 13. Paul teaches Christians to never take personal revenge, to leave room for the wrath of God. Okay, that's what he's talking about at the end of chapter 12. But then he immediately goes on to talk about the vengeance that the Lord carries out through the civil magistrate in chapter 13. So these two things are not opposed to one another. Peter and Paul are not advocating for pacifism. But what they're teaching us is that when our enemies revile us or are doing evil against us, personally, we are not to speak evil. We are not to speak deceitfully. We're not to do evil against our enemies. Rather, we are to bless them. Okay? It's not enough just to, I'm going to go inside my house and close the doors and not return evil for evil. He says, actually, I want you to bless them. What? Are you serious, Peter? You want me to bless in return? I'm supposed to bless the guy who's out to get me for no good reason? I'm supposed to bless the guy who's trying to get me fired because of my Christian convictions? I'm supposed to bless the person who's trying to ruin my reputation by slandering me? Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when the men of the council, he was preaching to them. They didn't like his preaching. They rejected him as they rejected Christ. And they start throwing stones at him to kill him. How did he use his last remaining breaths? He didn't raise his fists at them. He didn't scream at them. He didn't say God's going to get you. No, he used his last breaths to pray for them. 
Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Okay, righteous Stephen is praying to the Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Just like Jesus at his death, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Acts 7 also tells us that a young man named Saul was standing there when Stephen prayed that prayer. And the Lord answered Stephen's prayer. When Stephen blessed his enemy, Saul, the Lord answered that prayer, and that young man became the Apostle Paul. We can bless and pray for our enemies because while we were still enemies, Christ prayed for us and died for us. Paul says, do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We overcome evil with good by not returning evil, but by returning blessing instead. Proverbs says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. And the glorious thing about this calling to bless our enemies is that the Lord doesn't just command us to do it. He doesn't just say, do it and be good about it. He says, I'm going to reward you when you do it. I'm going to bless you. There's a blessing for us when we walk in God's ways. And this is our last point briefly here. The church will receive God's blessing when we love the church as we've been called and when we bless our enemies. Peter says, for to this you were called that you may obtain, you may inherit a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Okay, Peter here is quoting Psalm 34, which we heard read and sang this morning. That actually shows up a good bit through his letter. It's really fascinating how, how Peter's working with Psalm 34 throughout the letter. But he shows us with Psalm 34 the motive for walking in God's ways as we seek to love one another in the church and bless those who curse us. Psalm 34 says in paraphrase, if you want to live the good life, if you want to see good days, if you want to love life, you want to enjoy God's blessing, walk in his ways, fear the Lord, turn from evil and do good. Love the church and bless your enemies. The whole psalm is about the Lord who sees and hears his people. Taste and see that the Lord is good, the psalm says. His praise shall continually be in my mouth because his face is turned towards those who fear him and walk in his ways. We have his favor. His face is, is shining toward us. And he hears his people. He hears you and delivers you and sees what's going on and he defends your cause. Like a father who hears his child crying out. Okay, he knows that child's voice. I know some of you mamas, you know your, you know your child's voice. When you hear crying, y'all stop and go, is that mine? You hear that child's voice, you know it. And you step in and you deliver that child. Okay, that's what the Lord does. He turns his ears towards his children's cry and he steps in and he delivers. The Lord turns towards us when we cry out to him. He desires to bless you and to show you his favor. The psalm also teaches that the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. He cuts them off. He judges them. He condemns them. 
If you do not walk in God's ways, you should only expect pain and misery. The Lord opposes those who oppose him. Psalm 34 speaks proverbially here. If you want a good, happy life, walk in God's ways. If you don't, you should expect pain and misery. If you put your hand on the stove, you're going to get burned. It's that simple. These are the consequences uh, in life to good and evil. But these consequences are not the result of some mysterious karma in the universe. These consequences are the result of the good Lord who is on his throne. He sets his face toward the righteous, and he sets his face against those who walk in wickedness. What is the blessing that the Lord promises to those who walk in his ways? The blessing is that God is for you. He is for you in this life and in the next. We have his favor here and now, and we have the hope of fellowship with him and his saints for all eternity. Does not mean we're going to have a trouble-free life. That is not what see good days means. Peter makes that clear throughout. Doesn't mean trouble-free days, but it does mean that when you have trouble, you can walk in genuine joy, knowing that you have God's favor, knowing that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. The sovereign Lord is on his throne, and whatever comes your way is not a surprise to him. In fact, he sent it. Whatever comes your way, he sent to you because he loves you. If you're walking in humility toward him, you have to believe that promise. We know that his face is turned towards us. Because we are in Christ, we have the Father's favor. We can't lose. You cannot lose if you are in Christ and walking in his ways. If God is for us, who can be against us, Paul says. So we walk in the character of Christ in love towards our brothers and sisters in the church. We walk in the character of Christ when our enemies revile us because we know God's got it. Okay? We don't have to try to make it right ourselves. We know our Father loves us and He's got it. Bless them and pray for them and know that the Lord is on the throne ready to bless you when you do that. Whatever trials you're going through, whatever hostility you encounter from your enemies, this promise assures us that God is on the throne and his favor is turned towards you if you're humbly submitting to him. The Lord sees and he hears, cry out to him. He is listening and he is ready to act on your behalf. Taste and see that the Lord is good. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let us continue to worship by giving of our tithes and offerings.